Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. This summer's House Judiciary Committee held congressional hearings and eventually passed five legislative proposals on what the sponsors of the legislation are calling too much market power through the dominant positions of, quote, big tech firms, namely Alphabet's Google, Amazon, Apple, and Facebook. Some of the proposals target the mobile app store model where the mobile marketplace is created and managed by a mobile operating system for an app creator to sell their software applications, known as apps, in the chosen mobile device. While other legislation would outlaw certain business practices for large tech firms, such as merging two companies or restricting future acquisitions of a second technology company become part of the larger tech company's platform. Unfortunately, most of these proposals do not take into account how consumers would fare under a new, more restrictive regulatory regime. Today, I'm joined again by Mark Jamison to co-host another discussion with our tech policy expert on the future of antitrust, competition, and tech regulation. Today's conversation will focus more on legislative actions from Congress rather than federal agencies. Our expert guest on this episode is Jennifer Huddleston. Jennifer recently joined NetChoice as a policy counsel. Prior to NetChoice, she served as the Director of Technology and Innovation Policy at the American Action Forum and a research fellow at the Mercatus Center. Jennifer joins the podcast to discuss what tech antitrust proposals in Congress would mean for the future of mergers and acquisitions in the tech industry, along with how these proposals would change the services that consumers are offered by these innovative technology companies by leaving the previously permissionless innovation cycle to a more heavy-handed model of regulation of Silicon Valley. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. We want to talk about antitrust legislation that's under consideration on Capitol Hill. But let's start with a quick refresher. Tell us what is antitrust about and why does it matter? So antitrust is really about competition law and policy in the U.S. It's about a couple of different statutes, but it's also about how the courts have interpreted what those statutes mean. You'll hear a lot of terms like the consumer welfare standard, because at the heart of it, competition policy is really designed to protect consumers from the harms that can come from monopolization. It also is there to make sure consumers are receiving the benefits of a competitive market. So these laws really evolved in kind of the early 1900s when people were concerned about the big trusts. So things like big oil, big steel, big railroads, things like that. And there were questions of were these industries really still competitive or was there anti-competitive behavior going on in such a way that it was harmful and not really a free market anymore? So out of that, we saw a few statutes emerge to really state what the rules for competition policy were. Then there was an era where the FTC and the DOJ were interpreting these rules as well as the courts where it wasn't always clear what was considered anti-competitive actions and what was considered monopoly behavior. As a result, in kind of more recent years, what we saw emerge, and this was a good 40, 50 years ago, going back to the antitrust paradox, is this idea of the consumer welfare standard. We can create an objective measure to help us know in many of the cases where it's unclear whether or not competition laws are being violated, that courts can use to examine whether or not consumers are being harmed by these anti-competitive actions. Because that's what's really at the heart of antitrust law. 
it's not designed to be about is big bad. It's designed to be about are consumers being harmed and not receiving the full benefits of the market. So the House of Representatives introduced five bills in the House Judiciary Committee early June of this year. And then there was a six that was brought in over the summer in August. All appear to be very significant. And while the bills don't name specific companies, we all know what they're getting at as they've included thresholds that make them apply to companies like Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Alphabet's Google. So what is the push behind these new antitrust laws that are targeting really these specific companies? We've seen a resurgence in interest in antitrust, and we saw this at first on the left with a group of scholars that you could term kind of neo-Brandeisians because their theories of antitrust really go back to kind of the, the old Brandeis school of antitrust that saw this as potentially being able to be used for other policy outcomes and not as focused just on the consumer welfare standard and just on those measures of an objective standard. At the same time, we've seen a lot of criticism from both the left and the right of tech companies, and particularly of the larger tech companies, not necessarily just about their size, but about other policy concerns, many of which I know you've covered on the show, Shane, everything from privacy to content moderation and many other issues. And in an effort to by some policymakers that is largely misguided to go after those concerns, we've seen them proposing using antitrust law or changing antitrust law to potentially break up these large companies with a goal at times of changing these other policy elements as well. The problem is that antitrust is a sledgehammer, and there's no guarantees that smaller companies would have those other privacy or content moderation changes that are often part of the reason why some policymakers want to go after these tech companies. At the same time, we've also seen that particularly from some Democrat members of Congress, while these laws may be initially aimed at targeting big tech companies, they're also much more open to speaking more generally about potential antitrust reform. Senator Klobuchar particularly has been very open that she's interested in examining other big areas of business, whether it's big ag or big pharma or many other areas. One of the bills that is before the House Judiciary Committee is called the Ending Platform Monopolies Act. And basically what it would do is it would require any particular company, any of these companies that it's targeted at, that uses their platform to promote or sell their own products or services to be broken up. So it's it's that, that clear and that blunt. What are your thoughts on that? So when it comes to companies' ability to sell their own services or promote their own services, I think it's important to think about what that would actually mean. We want to think about what that would mean for consumers, both in the current situation and if this change occurred. So think about a company like Amazon, or think about your local drugstore, your local CVS. In both cases, they'll oftentimes offer a generic version of many popular products. This isn't just about big tech companies. This is about a common practice in the retail industry. And consumers often benefit from having more choices as a result of that and having a lower cost alternative available to them. So you may be willing to, say, buy the generic NyQuil because it's a few dollars cheaper at your CVS, or you may find that Amazon Basics dress shirts or batteries provide just as good of a quality product as the alternative available. 
In other cases, you may find that a name brand product is really important to you as a consumer for reasons of trust or because you believe they have a superior product. What proposals to prevent companies from doing this would do is it would mean that places like Amazon wouldn't be able to offer their own generic product, while places such as Walmart or CBS could offer their own generic product if they were also to allow third-party sellers to sell their product through their marketplace, which then puts them in a tough place when they're looking at competing with these other traditional retail giants that are also rapidly moving online. And I think that's an important thing to think about too with these thresholds. While right now it may only be Amazon or Apple or Google that have crossed these thresholds, there are plenty of large companies such as Home Depot, and Walmart that are rapidly growing where they could find themselves subject to these thresholds as well. Yeah, I'm fascinated that they don't look at Walmart or Costco or Sam's Club when they're looking at all this. And I have nothing against all those. I'm all about efficiency in the market. And every time I I see a Kirkland brand, I'm a little jealous because I don't have any space for extra stuff. (laughs) But I'm always amazed at like all the things. And they're always trying to figure out who makes the Kirkland bourbon, you know, or who's the... So there's, there's, you know, there's a whole other side to that that somehow escapes all these bills, which just thoroughly fascinates me. But there's another bill, the American Choice and Innovation Online Act, that takes a different approach. It would allow the platforms to sell its services on the platform, but would impose a lot of conditions, such as not favoring its own products, like we just talked about, or not using the data generated by the platform to offer these products, and would also restrict customers from uninstalling pre-installed software. That part, I'm sure you can explain it. I'm not quite sure what we're doing there. There's also a half a dozen other restrictions. And so which of these provisions do you think make the most sense? And are are these actually a concern, you think? Let's start with the pre-installed software one, because I think that's one that a lot of people can actually imagine a, a scenario of what that would look like. Imagine if you went and bought a new iPhone or a new Google Pixel, and you got it and it came out of the box and you turned it on and there was absolutely nothing on Nothing, right. I, I think, you know, some, some savvy users would say, well, that's what I do to my phone anyway. I, I want to install all my own apps. I know how to direct download things. I'm going to find a way to do this. A lot of consumers expect that their new smartphone is going to have certain basic elements to it, that it's going to have a calendar app, that it's going to have a mail app, that it's going to have what easy ways to download their favorite music or streaming services. And so we don't want a case where you're literally getting an iPhone out of the box with nothing on it. The other element here is that, again, it goes back to that question of how does this compare to what we've been seeing going on in the past? We've also seen that for a long time, traditional retailers have tracked what products were popular and decided those are the products that they might want to make their own generic store brands of, whether you're Costco or Walmart or Target or CVS. But at the end of the day, retailers don't have all of the information about what makes a product the product. No matter how much data you have on what's popular with consumers, there's always that special sauce that an original innovator had. And that goes back to what we were discussing earlier with why some consumers may sometimes choose a name brand product versus a generic product. And at the same time, this can also be a way for a lot more consumers to get exposed to an idea or a new service by having more options available, and they can 
find what works best for them. I also think that when, you know, we used to just be a, a web world and you had to download software, it was kind of a pain in the ass sometimes. It didn't always, it was a little jinky, you know, it wasn't smooth. And the app world has solved that problem for the most part. You know, depending on which provider you use, it has a lot of security. And so I'm I'm just not quite sure why we're, we're, we're picking on the things that work. <laughs> I think it's also important to point out that if that doesn't work for you, choice is usually only a few clicks away. If you don't like the Safari browser that comes pre-installed on your iPhone, you can change it to a different browser. If you want to use a different search engine, you can type in and go to a different search engine. This isn't a, a matter of, of a lot of steps typically involved in order to change the choice, in order to have a different choice if you are someone who likes something other than the defaults. So Jennifer, another bill that was introduced in, in June of 2021 is called the Platform Competition and Opportunity Act 2021. What it would do is it would restrict big tech firms from acquiring smaller startup firms. It's based upon this idea of the, the killer acquisition, you know, that the reason that Facebook bought Instagram was to kill it off from being a competitor, turn it to a successful company, but certainly killed it off as a competitor. That Google built its ad platform by acquiring other companies that might have come up to be competitors of Google. That's, that's the basic theory. What are your thoughts on that kind of restriction that keeps a big tech company from buying smaller startups? As you mentioned, this largely stems from this, I would argue, myth of the kill zone. And the short version is people provide new ideas and people create innovative tech products for a lot of different reasons. And as a result, if a bill like this became law, you would be effectively closing one of the doors to one potential exit strategy. And there's a question of what would that do for those innovators, for those products, for those investors, as well as for the product, for the larger products that many of us like. Some people come up with a great idea that improves an existing product. Their goal isn't to create a huge product. Their goal is just to make some marginal change that they found works better or that they feel like consumers may want on an existing product. Other people want to create that next big product. They want to create the next great social network. They want to create the next search engine. They want to create the next thing that we haven't even imagined yet that's going to completely revolutionize the technology in our lives. And that's a great strategy too. And we definitely are still seeing a lot of innovation. And it's very exciting when one of those companies goes and becomes successful and challenges an existing rival. But there's a lot of steps along the way that may mean in terms of business strategies that there are decisions where mergers and acquisitions are better both for the companies involved, both large and small, and for consumers. Because again, when we're talking about antitrust, we want to bring it back to consumers and to consumer protection and consumer welfare. So oftentimes, mergers can be beneficial for consumers. And that's really part of this ecosystem as well. When it comes to what would a bill like this do, as I mentioned, it would kind of close off that door. And there's a question of what that would mean for future ecosystems. There's also a question of what it would mean in terms of potentially presuming that mergers are unlawful until they're proven innocent instead of vice versa, and what that could mean in terms of a chilling effect on innovation and on a healthy merger economy as well. But I think it's often portrayed as this dichotomy of either you get 
gobbled up by one of the big guys or you become a giant. But the short version is that it's a much more diverse ecosystem with a lot of different exit options and a lot of different reasons for those exit options. Some people are really great at bringing a product to market, but they may not want to be responsible for taking it to the next phase. They may want to get out and have another innovative product. Other people really want to rise up and challenge the the current giants or come up with something completely innovative. But that's a big risk too. It's not every company that's able to end up with an incredibly successful IPO. So we shouldn't pretend that that's an automatic surefire way for a company to be successful either. And I think that's a really strong point that if you look at all the studies that have been done of what small businesses fail, a lot of time it's that step from being the small business to being a medium business. That's really a, a whole change in management. And a lot of people can't make that transition. So being acquired is maybe their only way of that product ever actually getting to market. Well, sometimes it, an example was when Microsoft came out with Word. I still miss Word Perfect, by the way. I love original codes. Was somebody came out with a better spell check process. And it was, they were, you know, their whole goal was to just make the product better and we're happy to be acquired into, you know, the Microsoft ecosystem. And that's what we all, or some iteration of it is, is a lot of what we use today. So, you know, I think it's, there's multiple reasons for an acquisition strategy, but it's, it's not uncommon in the, the tech space. Jennifer, there was the bill that was introduced in August, the Open Apps Market Act, targeted iPhones and Android phones. And the legislation, amongst other things, required companies to permit third parties to install their own apps on their phones. So a phrase called sideloading, which confuses some people, myself some days. And it allows you to bypass the app store and permit third-party payment systems. And I have a huge concern about this area because I think it bypasses a lot of the security element that especially the iOS and the App Store have added into the system. It's one of the reasons why I believe their phone is is the value that it is. So do you have any thoughts about this August prize bill? I think that what you brought up is a a really strong point. So there's a lot of debate about is sideloading good or bad? And people that are concerned about sideloading point to these legitimate security concerns, these concerns about the dangers that can be associated with sideloading apps. Other people say, you know, it's it's my phone. I want to jailbreak it. I want to overcome everything. And I want to be able to put whatever I want on it and prefer to have other ecosystems that allow that. What's great right now is you have the iOS ecosystem that has that more secure product for people like yourself that want the security of knowing that the apps have been vetted and that it's a, a more secure ecosystem. You also have a Google Android product that allows more sideloading, that has more third-party app stores involved in the product. And so you really have this other dynamic of competition that a bill that mandates sideloading could also change. So when we think about some of these more limited areas, it's important to note that there are a lot of interconnected markets involved. And so while this bill may be portrayed at times as being about app stores and app competitions, it would also have an impact on the mobile operating system market because how one product has chosen to distinguish itself when it comes to its security features would be difficult, if not impossible, to continue under such changes. So Jennifer, a lot of the legislation is based upon a majority staff report that came out last year looking at competition in big tech. And one of the things that really struck me about that report 
is while it had hundreds of footnotes and sites, they were largely footnotes and sites of newspaper articles or memos and a few law journal articles, nothing against law journals, but they don't go through the rigorous review that other scholarly journals go through. And there have been hundreds of economics and business strategy articles written on big tech and, and the benefits and how well the businesses work, and they were completely ignored. So it just seems to me that there's a probability that if we follow the road that some of the people would like for us to be on, there's going to be some unintended consequences, things that people pushing the legislation just haven't quite considered fully. What are your thoughts on that? Are there possibly some and what might they be if there are? I think there definitely are some potential unintended consequences. And there are also some people that that may be pushing for legislative changes to antitrust that are actually more interested in other underlying policy problems. So I think when we're looking at antitrust, it's important to recognize what we're really looking at is the competition space. So if your policy goals are related to privacy or your policy goals are related to content moderation, you shouldn't really be looking at antitrust as a tool for that. When it comes to the potential unintended consequences for antitrust in big tech, I think we need to think about, first off, what would happen if you actually got success? So if you say, break up Facebook and Instagram, what does that actually mean in practice? What does that mean in terms of, is Facebook allowed to have photos on it? Is Facebook, is Instagram allowed to have its own messaging service? What are those barriers going to look like? Additionally, oftentimes in tech, we talk about how so much innovation comes from the unique elements of teams and talent that you seem to have together. You're going to have to break up several of those teams. And even if we look at the cases of, quote unquote, successful antitrust enforcement, if we look at things like the AT&T case, these are very long, complicated processes. Typically, I mean, with legislation, there would be a more direct impact. But there's a question of is perhaps innovation our best competition policy at times? Is there something out there that right now is small that is going to gain an incredible amount of popularity very quickly? Where 10 years from now, we're talking about an entirely different set of times. So if we'd been having this conversation, you know, 15 or so years ago, We'd be talking about how MySpace is a natural monopoly, how Yahoo won the search wars, and could anyone ever catch Nokia? And these are all real headlines that ran. And so we have to think about that question too. And while every time someone wants to claim that this time it's different, we currently have an objective standard when it comes to antitrust, a standard that's able to look at the scenario and really calculate whether or not consumers are being harmed. Before we consider changing an antitrust standard, we really do need to look at those collateral potential collateral consequences. I also think it's important to note that while we're talking about what's going on in the U.S. right now in this conversation, we can't ignore what's going on, particularly in Europe, at where there is the Digital Markets Act that is very clearly aimed at targeting American tech companies, in part because they are so successful and subjecting them to regulations that would mean that it was much harder for those products that consumers enjoy to be offered in the same format or for further innovation to occur. So a lot of us have been 
fairly critical of some of the things that are going on in the legislation, also just going on in in some of the antitrust work. But at the same time, you'd be hard-pressed to find any of us that would say, our current legislation is just pristine and perfect and and should have no changes. So if you had a magic wand and could just rewrite what the competition laws would look like in the U.S., what kinds of changes would you suggest? Well, the first thing I would point out is the consumer welfare standard is currently judge-made law. So putting that into statute and clarifying what should be considered under the consumer welfare standard, I think, is step one. Also, some of the other areas where there's a lack of clarity is we have two agencies that are tasked with antitrust enforcement, both the Department of Justice, the DOJ, and the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC. So clarifying the appropriate roles for each agency so that there's not confusion or governmental waste by two agencies with a similar mandate. So clarifying what each agency's role should be at at a minimum. Additionally, there's been a lot of questions around the appropriate levels of funding. As was mentioned, antitrust is is a very time-consuming process. It's a process that needs good legal talent. So we want to make sure that if we are giving agencies a mandate to be enforcers, that they have the resources that they need to engage in appropriate levels of enforcement. The consumer welfare standard is agnostic about what that appropriate level of enforcement is, but it really does provide that North Star, that guiding light for agency enforcement. And then finally, I think there is a possibility of considering whether or not the power of antitrust enforcers should include the ability to bring cases against a wider variety of potential defendants, including state licensing boards I know have been considered, as well as potentially nonprofits and educational institutions. Thank you so much for your time today. There was a lot of clarifying moments during this conversation, which I hope our listeners find as useful as I did. And we hope that you will come back on to explain to Shane when we find out where all this legislation is headed. Absolutely. You know, I I think that one thing we can say for sure is that this is a continuing conversation, both with what's going on in the legislature, as well as with the enforcement actions that we're currently seeing at the FTC and DOJ, as well as in the states. Fantastic. Thanks for being a guest on Explain to Shane. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.